0: Good morning. You're on it this morning. That was impressive. Uh, Hey, I know you were on it with the good morning, but there's also a little bit of a sigh of like, "Oh, Kale's still on sabbatical." I get it. I get it. Um, I know. I I, I feel it too. And so um, I I get to be here this morning. Uh, If you're a guest this morning, um, you're in you're in good company. Guests, just real quick. for you, we, we've got a digital guest information card. We'd love you to fill that out. Go to lpguest.com. Um, digital guest information card will connect with you. We'll also donate five bucks in your honor. Uh, it's one of our partner ministries, so we'd love we'd love that. But again, guests, I, I'm a guest this morning too. So my name is Paul Pretty, and um, I get to be the teaching pastor at the Marion Campus. And so uh, it is a joy and a privilege to be with you this morning for a lot of different reasons. Um, uh, primarily... Uh, almost a year and a half ago now, which sounds crazy to me. Um, my wife and I, along with 30 or 40 other people, stood on a stage that was about 30 feet that way. And um, you all committed to praying for us as we went out to plant another life point location in Marion. And I can't believe it's been over a year already. Uh, we launched on Easter of 2022. And so um, I just want to say thank you Um, And there's a lot of reasons for that. But because of your faithfulness, because of your commitment, God has used that. God has used your sacrifices. God has used your your sacrifices in the terms of giving, in the terms of prayer, in the terms of going up and working on the building in Marion. God has used all of that to help people know who he is. And to help people step into community, to help people walk into life groups, maybe for the first time, to help people see that that there is a there is a community of believers in Marion, and there's a large community in Marion who needs the gospel. And you 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 all have made that a possibility. And so what I want to say is keep up the gospel-centered, sacrificial heart to say we don't hold on, but we let go. Because when we let go we get to see the gospel multiplied. And so church, I just want to begin by saying thank you. Okay? Thank you. Well this morning we're going to continue on in the series that we've been in for several weeks now throughout the course of the summer, a series called Under the Sun. And of course in this series we're walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, um, and, and I know you, you've had all sorts of different introductions and things like that, and so I want to make sure we're all on the same page what we've seen is this preacher, uh, we believe it to be the voice of Solomon, and he sets out in chapter 1, he really gives us his, his primary thesis, in a sense, if you will, in, in verse 3, he says, what does a man gain by all of the toil at which he toils under the sun? He's really asking, what's the point, what's the purpose, what, what really benefit is there of all of this? And he actually gives his ultimate answer in verse 2. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that word vanity essentially means meaninglessness. You chase after the world, you chase after what the world can offer, and you're going to end up feeling like you've gotten nothing. It's very depressing. <laughs> and so then we've gone over these number of weeks, and what the preacher has been doing is proving to us that his statement is valid. He's been proving to us that, no, really, let me explain to you how it is that I've come to this conclusion. And over and over and over again, he's saying vanity of vanities. But praise God, he doesn't end there. We don't end there. We have the point that that really permeates this entire series and that God offers us a full life in an empty world. And that's, Lord willing, what we're going to see each and every week as we walk through this series. And so today we're going to be in chapter 7. And we're also going to start out in chapter 2, because I think those two are, are linked. And I know you've been through chapter 2. I'm aware of that. I apologize in advance for the redundancies, but this is just how my brain works, and so we're going to go there first. And also, before we get into any of that, this is a really difficult book, so I'm going to pray, because Lord knows I need it, all right? So let's pray together, just that God would help us this morning, all right? Father, uh, we come before you um, in need Uh, You promised us that that your word is living and active, and so we ask that you would make it living and active in our hearts today, Uh, that you would shape us, that you would change us, that you would convict us, and you would lead us to the cross. Uh, Father, get me out of the way. Um, Help me teach and communicate your word clearly, so Jesus, you are magnified, you are glorified. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so again, Ecclesiastes 2, we're going to start in an overview, a little bit of a, of a background, because we're going to carry what we see in Ecclesiastes 2 into chapter 7. He says this, the preacher, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly. Till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of his life. It's so fascinating. It's as if he has this idea of, hey, you know what? I'm going to try. I'm going to see what I can lay hold of. And he calls it folly. And Folly really just means... It can mean a variety of things, but it's really anything that he deems as pleasurable. Folly could mean, in this instance, sexual pleasure. Folly could mean, in this instance, partying. All sorts of different things. And essentially what he's saying is, I'm going to go through this experiment to say, I'm going to pursue everything to the fullest. I have no regard for how it impacts other people. My primary goal, my primary objective is to say, how can I satisfy myself? That's his goal. And I I applaud him for his transparency. Like, there's nothing about this that he's saying, this will will help other people. No, this is all about him. Continuing on in verse 4, he says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. Don't do that. And had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. He goes big. Verse 8, he says, I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Work to the fullest beautiful vineyards buildings fantastic treasures gold all of these things and then he says you know what I could really use is some some concubines and he so he goes crazy with that other where, other places in the scripture tell us he got 300 of them he already had 700 wives brothers got some issues all right and so like man I mean, whoa take it easy there pal um And then in verse 17, this is really fascinating. So he pursues all of this to his fullest. Like, I am going big. I don't care. It's all about me. Verse 17, he says this, and this is so fascinating. So I hated life. (laughs) Didn't see that one coming. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. And I think we're told in this culture, do all of those things and you'll love life. It'll be awesome. And he says, no, I hated life. And so now we carry that pain, we carry that turmoil, we carry that soul emptiness with us into chapter 7. Okay? Chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. He says, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. And to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness, that is madness. Now, what a turn of events, huh? Back in the other verses, he's saying, I'm going to lay hold of folly. And now that he's laid hold of folly, and he's seen what? Verse 17 of chapter 2, I hated life. He's saying, wait a minute, apparently this doesn't work. And so now in chapter 7, connecting this... He says, I turn to see the wickedness of folly. It's a complete 180 from where he was. And so now, it's almost as if he's, he's looking for spiritual answers. <laughs> it's almost as if he's trying to look over the sun, and he's trying to understand why is, is everything that I have pursued left me feeling broken, left me feel, feeling empty. And God is gracious to begin to give him answers in verse 26. And he says, I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. (laughs) Now, moment of transparency, I read the word fetters and I said, I don't know what that means. And so I looked it up. uh, Because you can do that. And so fetters really means chains. All right. And so he's saying, more bitter than death. Remember, before it was the delight of man is his 300 concubines. And now he's, he's here and he's, he's experienced all of that. And he says, no, it's actually more bitter than death. Their hearts, <laughs> their hands have imprisoned me. And I think I, I want to just make a note here in history. This verse has been translated to say that if a man is caught in an adulterous relationship with a prostitute, it's somehow the woman's fault, solely. And I don't think that's what Solomon is saying here at all. Remember, it was Solomon who actually went out and sought those concubines. It was Solomon who gathered this great harem. It was Solomon who really pursued all of this. And so they were actually probably there against their will. Once again, don't do that. And so as he's pursued this and pursued this and pursued this, he's found again, I hate this. I'm broken. I am empty. And I think what he's really talking about here is the sin of sexual immorality. The sin of sexual immorality, and I'll just generally define it for us. There's many different ways in which this is used throughout the scriptures. Sexual immorality is any indulgence in excuse me, sexual pleasure that is outside of God's biblically defined way in which we should engage in sexual things, which is a man and a woman within covenant relationship under God. That's what sex is designed for. And so now that he's, he's pursuing this, We actually get some really good insights as to why God defined it that way and why when we go outside of those boundaries and outside of those limits, it actually destroys our souls. And now in moments like this, four months ago when I signed up to teach here at Delaware, I sort of wish I could have taught a different text because anytime you're teaching about sexual immorality, it gets pretty uncomfortable. Anyway, anyway, we'll go from here. So here's the question. Um, Why doesn't it work, right? Why doesn't all of this pursuit, all of this pleasure, why does it leave him feeling like I I hate my life and more bitter than death are these women that I have gone and pursued? Why? Well, I think of it a little bit like if you were to start drinking salt water. Imagine for a moment you're stranded in the middle of the ocean and you get really thirsty and you look around and you're like, there's water everywhere. This is great. And so you're really, really thirsty and so you, you grab some water and you start to drink it and for a moment it feels fantastic. You're satiated. You feel this like, oh, I'm no longer dying of thirst. This is great. And then what happens is a few minutes later, you realize, boy, I sure am thirsty. And so then you go ahead and you grab another drink of water from from the ocean, which is very salty. And then to your horror, a little bit later, maybe even sooner than your second drink, you realize you actually need a third drink. And this keeps perpetuating and going on and on and on again until you actually die. And so, why does that happen? Well, what we don't realize is that when we drink salt water, there's a lot of things going on in the body. You see, when you intake salt water and not fresh water, your blood becomes overly salty. I looked this stuff up. This isn't just from my brain, okay? Okay. Your blood becomes overly salty. And so what happens is your kidneys produce, begin to produce urine. And I never thought I'd use the word urine in a sermon, but here we are. Your kidneys begin to produce urine to, to level out your, your blood salt level. But in order to produce urine, they can only, your kidneys can only essentially um, create um, healthy urine to, to get rid of the salty stuff with fresh water. And so what your kidneys are doing is they're pulling fresh water from other places in your body. And what happens is, as you continue to ingest salt water, there's no more fresh water to produce. And so what happens is you die a slow, painful kidney failure death. And what in the world does that have to do with what Solomon is talking about? A very similar thing happens when we indulge in sexual immorality. It's everywhere. We say, oh, this is great. Take a drink. Ah, oh, satiated. I feel better. What's happening? Spiritual reason and a biological reason. Spiritually speaking, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, God says this Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is God's initial design, this was God's intention. I know kids in the room, you're like, why am I here this morning? Parents are like, I'm getting nervous. I'm sorry. I should have given you a heads up. Anyway, that's God's design, right? And so we see that happening in Genesis. We see this great thing that God has created to be enjoyed within the parameters that God has set forth for them to be enjoyed, okay? And that's very good. Now, We see also that there's a purpose behind this beyond just our enjoyment. And the ultimate purpose is to glorify Jesus. This union was created as a picture to point us forward to who Jesus is, and we actually see that explained in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5, okay? I'm not going to really work through these these verses in depth, but I do think they're helpful for us. Verse 22, chapter 5 says this, wives, submit to your own husbands. I know we hear that word and we're like rage against that, but it's not really talking about um, being uh, lower than or less than or, or not having any opinion or view. It's actually talking about following of leadership, so I'll just say that off the top. Husbands, excuse me, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so what you see is this God-defined relationship having the purpose to represent to us how the church submits to Jesus. That's really, really good. That's really healthy. That's a beautiful thing. And when it's done rightly, Jesus is glorified. Praise God. Now, what about the husbands? It says wives should submit, husbands should die. So I think I'd rather the former. Um, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Fellas? <laughs> that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so in this beautifully created relationship, you have a picture of Jesus all the way back in Genesis 2, 24. It's amazing. Now, what's the problem when we go outside of those barriers? We use this thing for the purpose it was not intended to be used for, And therefore, we rob Jesus of the glory that he deserves, and we begin to destroy ourselves. You see, we're actually quite satisfied when we stay within the boundaries of of the things that God has set out for us to do. And so then when we begin to step outside of those boundaries, when we begin to to look elsewhere, what happens is is while God intended us to be satisfied within this thing, we long uh, essentially we grow and develop within ourselves dissatisfaction by looking everywhere else. And so I think that's what's happening with Solomon here. More bitter than death are these women that I followed. And again, it's not speaking to the women, it's actually speaking really to Solomon's choice of them. Second reason is, is actually biological. There's a hormone called oxytocin, okay? Hormone called oxytocin. Oxytocin actually in women, there's 10 times more oxytocin in women than there is in men. And so what happens is when a woman gives birth, for example, this is when oxytocin really plays a hero, oxytocin skyrockets because the women just experience excruciating pain. I don't know how you all do it. You're great. And so instead of hating this little creature that has caused you agony, you love this little creature because your oxytocin is through the roof. See, what oxytocin does is it tells your brain, I need to love this thing. I need to bond with this thing. I need to hold this thing close. It's the most precious thing in the entire world. And so women naturally have this higher level of oxytocin. Men, not so much. There's a reason, actually, why when you have a baby, the nurses say, hey, hey, dad's skin to skin. I remember the first time I said that. I was like, i got to reveal this pasty thing. and I don't know. You know I mean, it just, it just got a little bit weird. I shouldn't have said that, probably. Anyway, and so... What happens is skin-to-skin, skin-to-skin contact with your little baby it actually boosts men's oxytocin. And so men begin to feel this bond and this connection with their little one, and their little one begins to feel this bond and connection with dad. Now, what in the world does that have to do with this text? You see, what happens is oxytocin, when husband and wife are physically intimate, oxytocin levels are actually the same, scientists would say. And so what that means is there is a bonding together through these hormones, through these chemicals in our body. They're essentially sticking together. And so then what happens is if you begin to pursue things outside of that relationship that was intended to be bonded, what happens is you begin to rip that bond apart and that hurts. You actually, your soul was knitted together with that person, biologically. (laughs) A stunning thing. And so then, when Solomon is, is going after 700 wives and 300 concubines, imagine the soul ripping that has taken place a thousand times. That hurts. And there's pain. And there's agony. And that's why this doesn't work. And that needs to be a warning to us. We will rip our souls apart if we pursue this outside of God's design and outside of God's parameters. Continuing on in the text, second half of verse 26 through 29 says, He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. Scheme of things is essentially all of the things that we pursue in our sin, the ways that we invent to sin, which my soul has sought repeatedly but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. I think it's easiest to understand this if we start at the end. Verse 29, God made man to be righteous before sin entered the world. And yet what has man done? Schemed and thought of ways that he can rebel against God. And so what Solomon seems to be craving here, what Solomon seems to be looking for in all of his pain and all of his dissatisfaction is for somebody to connect with. And and when he says one man among a thousand I have found, I don't think he's meaning that in any form of homosexuality. What I think he's meaning is he's found one man that is righteous and who is following God and that is an encouragement to his soul. But he says he's found no women who were righteous and following God and that's not an overall comment negatively toward women. That's a lot of comment toward how Solomon was pursuing women. Solomon actually had a high view of women. If you look at the book of Proverbs, the voice of God and the wisdom of God is personified as a woman. And so what he's saying here is, I have chased all of the wrong people, all of the wrong things, and I find myself hating my life. I followed so many schemes. And I imagine this moment for Solomon. Again, as he sought to lay hold of folly in every way he could, and now he sought to see the wickedness of folly Maybe he went out on his balcony, put his hands on the marble railing, And he looked out over his vast, beautifully cultivated empire with its shiny buildings and his 153,600 employees, many of whom were forced to be his employees and his harem, still asleep in his bedroom. And this was maybe the moment that he felt, everything I've worked for has been accomplished, everything I've worked for has been achieved. This is the moment that I thought I would find the greatest satisfaction, but this is the moment that his soul is crushed. I've been looking forward to this, and now I feel just Empty. And broken. And so I wonder what that moment is for you. Maybe for you, it's not in the realm of sexual immorality, but maybe for you, you you love your work. Praise God. Work is good. It existed before sin entered the world. But as you've worked, you've you've made like, okay, I got to get to the next thing, the next promotion, the next title. And when when you get there, you're like, this is going to be great. But all of a sudden, it's actually way more stressful and and you actually really hate it. And so then you're forced to, to figure out, okay, do I just quit and waste everything? Or do I keep going for the next promotion? because your soul feels empty. I've been there. Maybe for some of us, this moment of greatest despair comes when we clear the browsing history yet again. That was me for 10 years. How can I keep doing this? This taste, self-loathing, clear the history. Taste, self-loathing, clear the history. Maybe a touch too personal but I feel Solomon. I empathize with Solomon." And so he ends, once again, with verse 29. God made man upright, but they, they have sought out many schemes. And it's really a depressing tone, isn't it? It feels too depressing for mid-July, I don't know. And so I think the question is, well, what do we, what do, we do with this text? Where do we go from here I think the first thing we have to see, church, is this. God reveals his love when he wrecks us over the wickedness of our sin. <laughs> God actually reveals his great love for us when he wrecks us over the wickedness of our sin. And that is a painful statement to make. That is a hard statement to make. Here's the thing, I remember when I first started following Jesus pretty soon after that, and this church was instrumental in that, by the way, that's another reason I thank you. I'm just so grateful for this church. Anyway. I was reading through the book of Romans, and I came across this one verse in, in the book of Romans, Romans 1.24. I think we've got it on the screens for you. Romans 1.24 says this, maybe. there, There it is. Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And I remember reading through the book of Romans and, and leading up to this God, uh, the apostle Paul was talking about how, how God has created this world and we should have a knowledge of God by just looking at the world and we should never worship God's creation we should worship God and then it gets to this point that, that these people were pursuing all of their own things, all of their own ways and the terrifying thing about this verse is that God said, go ahead go right ahead He gave them over to their desires. And as I was reading that, I was crushed by the reality that God could have given me over to my desires. Why didn't God give me over to my desires? I could have wrecked my life. I could have wrecked my family. I could have taken my family down the same road that my family went before me, which destroyed a marriage and which ripped my heart out. And I was blown away that instead of giving me over to everything, God wrecked me for my sin. What grace to reveal to me my wicked ways? What grace to show me the ways in which I'd gone my own way? What grace to break my heart? And yet, as I say all of that, I do think we need to be very, very careful because here's the problem with Solomon Solomon has an under the sun view. Not an over the sun view. And so now that Solomon is heartbroken over his sin, he's set out, he, he's accomplished what he set out to do, right? He's, he's accomplished uh, to know the wickedness of folly, and he knows it, and he's devastated by it, and it hurts. And Solomon, unfortunately for him, he doesn't have an over the sun view. And so he's left in this state of self. Loathing. You see, an awareness of wickedness without an awareness of the, of the grace of God leads to self-loathing. I think maybe some of us feel that this morning. We've, we've made a lot of mistakes, and we, we feel our sin. We've seen the destruction of our sin. We've seen the pain of our sin, and, and we just look at ourselves, and we think, you're terrible. How could you do this? And again, I've been there. And when we're there, we end up like Solomon, we say, I hate life because I just can't believe how horrible of a person I am. On the other end of the spectrum, other end of the spectrum, an awareness of grace without an awareness of wickedness leads to self destruction. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes if we're in the Christian world and we're following Jesus, we say, We've got grace. God forgives us of our sins. Amen. Praise God. But if we use the grace of God to enable us to continue pursuing sin and wickedness, do we really get it? And what God might do, which is terrifying to me, is to say, go ahead, have at it. Eat your heart out. And so we find ourselves in this tension. We need to be wrecked over our sin, but not so much that we end in self-loathing, And we need to understand the grace of God so much so that we also don't just keep pursuing sin and destroy ourselves. And so this is where we have to take an over-the-sun view. You see, an awareness of wickedness and an awareness of grace leads to gospel-centered transformation. We have to hold these two things in tension. And I think... Ephesians chapter 2 does it absolutely beautifully. I know we were in Ephesians already before, but I just want to read Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 for us. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in the work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Wickedness. Guilty. But God. Praise God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Praise God. Yeah, amen. Just, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, seriously, I, it's like, it's stunning that he doesn't just leave us in our brokenness, doesn't just leave us in our wickedness, but he says, no, I'm going to choose to love you. I'm going to choose to save you. I'm going to choose to pour out my grace upon you. Elsewhere in the book of Ephesians, he goes through all of these things that are true of us, that we are co-heirs with Christ. That we've been chosen before the beginning of time. and our sins are just completely washed away, completely done, completely not against us because of who Jesus is. Praise God. And so this morning, church, what I, what I really am praying for is that we would be wrecked over sin. And that sounds like a horrible thing to say. It's actually, I think, one of the best things that can happen to us. But we wouldn't stay in a state of self-loathing. We would see Jesus. And we would see that he loved us so much that he came to live righteously in our place, and he came to bear upon himself the wrath of God against my sin and against your sin. And what that would do, it was, would take us from this, I am a guilty, wretched sinner, to I am a beloved, known, saved, child, son, daughter of God. And he doesn't see me based off of my grotesqueness. He sees me based off of the righteousness of Christ. The Father sees you as a son or a daughter, and he doesn't, Deal with you according to your mess. He deals with you according to Christ, with whom He is well pleased. Therefore, when you are in Christ, when you have placed your faith in Christ, when you've repented from your sin, He sees you and He says, With you I am well pleased because Jesus is pleasing to the Father. And therefore, when we are in Jesus, we too are pleasing to the Father. But we've got to start first with Search me, O God. Search me, O oh God, and reveal to me the wickedness in my heart. And then lead me, by your grace, by your mercy, to the cross. And I want to take a minute this morning to really do that. And so I want to ask us to bow our heads. And I want you to pray the dangerous prayer, search me, O oh God. Search me, God. Work out what is sinful within me. Work out where I have tried to lay hold of folly, where I have tried to lay hold of sin. Convict me of it. <laughs> it's one of the most painful prayers that we can pray because it requires this acknowledgement that we're, we're in need. And one of the scariest things that we can do, I think, is, is make ourselves vulnerable because invulnerability is the potential of rejection and the potential of hurt. But that's not who God is. So if you've identified that thing in your life this morning that is this hard, if you've identified this thing in your life where you feel like I'm just broken, I want you to take that, like, hold it in your hands, literally, and I want you to just take it to Jesus and say, here you go. This thing was so serious that you, Jesus, had to die to save me from it. Help me not trifle with it. Help me not play with it. Help me not cuddle up next to it. But help me by your power and by your grace put it to death. And so as we do that, then I want us to pray, God, would you help me be overwhelmed by your grace, That I am saved, that I am forgiven, that I am redeemed, that I have good works set out before me to do, that I am a son or a daughter of Christ, that I am a co heir, I'm yours. And would you allow that, Father, by the power of your Spirit, to wash over us and to lead us into transformation? God, we need you to do that. We ask you to do that. We plead with you you would do that. And if there's anybody here this morning who doesn't yet know and love you, God, I pray that this would be the morning where the Holy Spirit is speaking into their hearts to say, I've made a mess of this thing. I've wrecked this thing. Jesus, I need you to come and save me. And praise God he is faithful to save you. Praise God he is able to save you. But God... Because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Father, we love you this morning. We need you this morning. Do what only you can do within us. It's in Christ's name that we come to you. It's in Christ's name that we pray.